0: Well, chances are you you couldn't resist. Maybe you wanted to. Maybe, maybe in the end the temptation was just too great. Or maybe you've been looking forward to this for months, for years. It's possible for years. And it finally came. What am I talking about? Avengers Endgame. That's what I'm talking about. $2.6 billion later, It is the number two, currently the number two all-time movie in the box office, isn't that crazy? It's 22 Marvel movies in the making over 11 years. It's nuts, many of you know every detail of every plot of every single one of those movies. Uh, Now listen, I act like I know anything at all, I don't. I've seen like four of the 73 Marvel movies, I think. Uh, I'm sort of a poser right now in this moment, which is really good for you because I couldn't spoil it even if I wanted to. Uh, which many, which I wouldn't anyway, because I'm not a monster. Okay, it's been out for a month, don't spoil movies. But I've seen enough of these movies to know, I've seen enough of these types of movies, a couple of the Marvels, I know what happens. It's the same plot line every time. Or at some point in the movie, all hope seems completely lost, right? The situation is beyond bleak. It was just hopelessness abounds. At some point in the meeting, in the movie, and it becomes sort of depressing, even. But then, right, this is why we have superheroes who band dozens of them in this case who band together, they use their powers to defeat evil and, and make a boatload of money in the process, right? Everyone wins in the Avengers series. Now, we have been working through Genesis this year. Uh, as a church, and we've reached a point in God's big story. Kids, you know especially about this, right? You talk about this every week, that the story of the Bible is a big God story, and we've reached a point in the narrative that parallels the Marvel universe pretty closely. Stay with me. I'm, I'm making a point there. Like every single Marvel movie, in Genesis, stuff seems to go bad really quickly. The world in, in Genesis has gone from good to bad to worse to burn it all down. That's where we've been in Genesis so far. Remember, God makes a good world. Genesis 1 and 2, we spent a long time there. It took us a little while to get through. But God makes humans. He puts them in a garden, and he calls all of it good, right? He shows us what life is supposed, how it's supposed to be lived. God's for all for his entire good world he calls it good. And then in Genesis 3, Adam and Eve tell God, "No thanks. We'll do it our way. We've got it. we'll take it from here. Thank you." And from there it all just spirals downward really fast. Right, Genesis 4. The last time I was up here, we talked about Cain, the first person born murders his brother. So human number 3 kills human number 4. That's the point in the narrative. It's really bad. It's not a great start for humans, right? And then quickly we get to Genesis 6, which reads this in verse 5, the Lord saw that the wickedness of humanity was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. I think think he's trying to make a point that it's it's pretty bad, right? Only evil all the time. And so God's judgment comes. we he, the, the word regret is used. God regretted that he had made humanity, and so the flood comes. He provides an ark. He always does. But the flood is judgment on the wickedness of the world. Noah and his family survive, but there's great judgment. And then last week, the first part of Genesis 11, the, the Tower of Babel, this human project where humanity tries to rebuild the Garden of Eden, but without God. For the glory of our name, humans say, not for his, God then spreads humans out. So the the project has failed. We are to blame. And we get to the end of chapter 11, and the question for the reader is this, what is God going to do? What's God going to do? How is he going to rescue us? What's the plan? I'll tell you right now, there's no heroes. Certainly not dozens of them, not yet, anyway. So we get to Genesis 12, sort of a turning point in the book of Genesis and this big God story as a whole. That's where we're spending our time this morning. It's a hinge point that sets a new direction for God's plan of redemption. I want to read it together. Genesis 12, verses 1 through 4. Just hear this. I don't think it's even going to be on the screen. Just hear the plan. Now the Lord said to Abram, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you, and I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So Abram went as the Lord had told him. So that's it. That's the plan. The hope hope of humanity in those four verses. And if we're honest, as I've tried to be honest this last week, it just doesn't seem like much. There's definitely no superheroes. Just an aging shepherd named Abram. Yet this is the start of something new in Genesis. Genesis. God's glimmer of hope to us, his plan for redemption. And so as we move through the text this morning, I'm going to make five five observations to help us sort of understand God's plan for my life, for your life, and as we find out, for, for all people. That's what this plan is all about. So first, God's plan always starts small. God's plan has a small beginning. His solution for the hopelessness of the human project is a human. <laughs> a shepherd, a, an obscure shepherd in the middle of nowhere, and, and a family that he doesn't have. That's the plan. It's about the smallest beginning you could imagine. Because Abram, he's 75. His wife, is Sarah is 65. We learn a little bit about them. Actually, all we know... To so this point is what we we're told at the end of chapter 11. Abram has some brothers, they have some wives, they have some kids. Abram and Sarah, though, do not have any kids. In fact, she can't have any kids. She's barren. And God looks at them, he engages Abram. Again, we should never tire of that in the, in the narrative. God says to Abram, you and your wife, you can't have kids. I get it, but I am going to make a family out of you, a nation out of you, Later, he's going to say, look up at the stars. Your descendants are going to outnumber that. And, Abram, I'm going to bless the world through you. And I can just imagine Abram sort of saying, like, really? Like, do you, maybe you have the wrong address? Like, maybe it's the Abram kind of down the way that you're looking for. I don't, we can't have kids. I'm 75. This is a tough, tough start to the plan, God. What are you doing here? Now, we, from our seat in history, we can look back. We can say, okay, Abram becomes Abraham, which means the father of many nations. We know that his, his family, he does indeed get a family that actually grow into the nation of Israel. We can see that one of his descendants, you maybe heard of this guy, is Jesus Christ. Right, we know, we can, we can look back and see how God's going to do this, but why begin here? Why with Abram? Why do it this way? Why not that? Why not, you know... Dozens of superheroes to save the day. Well, simply, it's just this is just the way God does it, right? Isn't it? Not just once, but over and over and over again, God's plan almost always begins small, like a seed. I mean, think about how Jesus came. God himself, born in a barn, placed in a feeding trough. The king of the universe. Remember, Jesus was there at the beginning. Through his word spoken, the universe comes into existence. He comes, not welcomed by a royal court, but by shepherds in the middle of the night, in the middle of nowhere. It's a small beginning to God's plan because that's how he works. Nondescript, under the radar, in the obscurity, in the unseen, in the impossible. This is impossible. Impossible. That's how Jesus came. And think about how Jesus talks about God's kingdom, which is just a way of saying where God reigns, which is to say everywhere. Think about how Jesus talks about the kingdom. The kingdom of God is like a mustard seed. It's so small. A baby born to a virgin in a barn in the middle of the night, ushering in a kingdom like this. These promises to Abram back in in chapter 12, they're made small again. God's plan is small. That's not all. Second, God's plan is also costly. There's a high price to pay here for Abram. God says to him, "Go." which probably doesn't really hit you and me like it should because of how easy it is for us to go. We're just we're so transient especially in this day and age so we can move places not a big deal or we sort of instantly make this about missionaries who are supposed to go across the world like that like that's what's happening here for Abram or something we often miss the impact of what god's calling him to do which is basically inviting to him to abandon for good everything that he's known all everything in his life that he knows god says leave it go Go from your country, your kindred, and your father's house. Those are the three things that he says. Leave behind your country. Quite literally, the land you own, leave it. Future location, TBD. Right, I'll show you that later. But right now, what you own, leave it behind. It's not like Abram sort of put his property up for sale in a seller's market. You know, He just left because God told him to. He left his country, his land. He says, leave behind your kindred. Remember, they can't can't have kids. There's no family on the horizon except the one that God is promising to give. But he says, the family you have, leave them behind. Your kindred, your household. And maybe the craziest, the sort of costliest of all, he says, leave behind your father's house, which is another way of saying, leave behind the inheritance leave behind the blessing that you stand to receive as a son to a father, leave it. Which is not only sort of unheard of in that day, it's sort of borderline unethical to leave your father's household. One commentator summed it up like this. It's a little dense, but I think it makes the point well. He must decide whether he, Abram, must decide whether to, to abandon his land in favor of the land Yahweh offers. He must decide whether to abandon his fam- what family he still has in favor of the family Yahweh promises against all logic, given Sarah's infertility. He must decide whether to set aside his blessing, his inheritance, for the one Yahweh describes. The initiative, here's the punch, the initiative offers much, but its cost is significant. This is, this is pricey, this is scary business for Abram, what God's calling him to do. And yet, God does not ask Abram to leave behind anything that he will not replace if he goes. I going to say that again. God does not ask him to leave behind, to forsake, to abandon anything that God does not promise to replace if he's obedient, if he goes, if he leaves. Land, I'll show you. Just trust me. Family, I'll give you one. I'll give you a nation. I'll give you a family that outnumbers the stars in the sky. Blessing, you want to talk about blessing? You've never seen anything like what I'm going to give to you if you just trust me. The cost is great. God's plan here is costly. But just like anything that's meaningful in this life, you get what you pay for. And that's true here. If Abram is going to experience this life, the good life that God promises, it's going to take some serious faith. He's going to have to have to put some skin in the game. Complete dependence on God. Trusting him that he'll make good on his word. Because Abram, he's leaving behind real valuable things. And the same is true for us. We, would, we all leave something behind to embrace God's claim on our lives. We all we must. The cost of faith, though, is worth it. I, I love the way the Christian missionary, the martyr, Jim Elliott, is a missionary to Ecuador, died in the Amazon with four others for his faith. He's he's famously made this case. Here's what he says is, he is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep, what he will always ultimately lose in the end, to give that up in order to gain that which you could never lose. It's smart, isn't it? In fact, it sounds a lot like what Jesus said, Matthew 16 telling his disciples, if anyone would come after me, deny yourself, take up my cross, follow me, for whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Sort of bears out what the call is here, right? It's costly. In fact, it's, it's probably more costly than you and I think. I mean, if we take Jesus seriously... It's not just we're, that we're leaving land behind or we're leaving our family behind or we're leaving you know, a, a big sum of money behind and in an inheritance. The cross means death. When Jesus says, take up your cross and follow me, he means what Diedrich Bonhoeffer said when he says, come follow me, he bids a man come and die. Talk about a high cost. But on the other side of death, is life that cannot be lost. Whoever loses his life for my sake will find it, which to the watching world looks crazy. Has anyone ever looked at you and the choices you've made because of you're sort of on the way of Jesus, you're following him, and they looked at you and said, what in the world are you doing? Why do you work like that? Why do you give... Your money to a church. I don't understand. Why do you parent that way? Why why are you moving to that place? I remember when we moved to Chicago for seminary, which we just sensed was the right the what God was having us to do in the next thing. Not that everyone is not that everyone going to seminary would be the thing that God's calling them to do. It was just it was true for us. I remember when we left. We had family members who were looking at us like, why are you quitting your jobs to go somewhere where you don't know what God's going to give you? It seemed crazy. I mean, there were moments where we're like, yeah, why are we doing this? But it was because we had, had this sense that God was leading us there, calling us to that obedience. Have you ever had someone look at you and ask, what in the world are you doing? If you haven't, if I haven't, have we really sort of died to ourselves? in the way that God's costly call demands. Because God rarely calls us to do what makes sense to the world, or even to us. But he does promise to be with us, and that it will be worth it. In fact, his promises are the only sure thing in this life. And to give up everything you have in pursuit of them is the wisest thing you could ever do. He is no fool who gives up what he cannot gain, what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. Third, God's plan is outward. So it's small, it's costly, and it's outward. This plan, it's not about Abram, not ultimately. It's not about you or me or even us. God's plan is outward. Look at verse 2. Walk back through it. These promises that he's made. I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you And make your name great. God makes huge promises that await him on the other side of obedience. This this childless family that will one day be a great nation. That's a huge promise. God's going to bless him, which means, remember, this blessing theme has been all throughout. Surfaces back in chapter 1. Blessing is the life and favor that comes from God. God says, I will bless you, which means you will find favor with me, protection from me. I will bless others through you. Those that you're close with will be blessed, find favor through you. I, I will bless all the families of the earth through you, and your name will be great. This obscure shepherd, his, he will be famous. His name will be great, which there's a wordplay happening in this story. Remember, if you look back in chapter 11, this Babel project, do you remember what the real problem was with the, the human project of Babel? Their mission, here it is in verse 4, let's build ourselves a city in a tower with its tops top in the heavens, and let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. So their the problem, remember, it's not their city building, it's, it's their name making. They say, let us make a name for ourselves. We want to settle here and be famous for what we've done. And then just a couple verses later, God says to Abram, I'm going to settle you in a land, and I'm going to give you a nation, and I'm going to give you a great name. It's this incredible thing that's happening in the Hebrew, where humans have tried to do this on their own. And really, the point is, God, he wants to make our names great. He wants to do it, though. That's the point here with Abram. I'm going to make a great nation. I'm going to make your name great. Why? so that you will be a blessing. Greatness in and of itself as an end to serve the one who is great is, is meaningless, so that you will be a blessing. And Abram, all the families of the earth scattered from Babel, people he doesn't even know will experience the favor of God through him. It's this incredible, incredible promise. With the culmination, of course, coming in the person and the work of Jesus, the Christ, the Messiah, the promised one, the descendant of Abram, the one who comes through his line, the blessing of blessings. There's a subtle promise even here that Jesus is coming, and when he comes, he's coming for all people, for the whole world. Jesus, through Jesus, the favor of God is extended to all people through his death and his life, his teaching, his healing, his listening, his loving, and his suffering, his sacrificing, his dying for you, for me, for all those who would trust in his great name. His life and death is a blessing to all the nations. That's why he came, not to serve, or not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And he saved us for the same purpose. Your life is not about you. It's about God working in and through you to to actually, in a crazy way, be a blessing to the whole world. Which I don't know about you, that sort of gives me a shot in the arm, like a little bit of purpose, some meaning, some direction, God's plan. If you're ever wondering what it is in your life, it's always outward. It's always self-giving to be a blessing to others. And the question I've been pondering the last couple of days is how am I, how are, how are you, how are we even as a church, how are, how are we stepping into God's plan for us in that way, to be a blessing to others and even to the nations, to all families of the earth, Over the next three months, as a whole church, Christ Community is going to be engaged in what we're sort of calling a summer of service, where we have these coordinated efforts with our our local outreach partners at all of our campuses that are available to all of us. You'll see it in the magazine. There's a whole spread open. You can go serve with any of our partners anywhere in the city. We're doing that together as a church this summer, but we also want to serve together our global Partners. And so we're entering a summer of prayer, specifically praying for our global outreach partners. Now, our our partner here at Shawnee is the China Partnership. Their mission is to serve local churches and pastors in China to extend God's favor to their entire country, to the all the way down to the foundations of society, because that's what's needed in China. And as you know, the the needs are serious right now. Church leaders are imprisoned. Uh, the church is is blowing up, which is what, I mean is what you see often in the in the face of persecution. The gospel spreads; it takes root. And yet they're saying we don't have enough pastors and leaders for these for people who are coming to faith in Jesus. We need you to pray for leaders, for pastors. We asked them how can how can we help, and they said pray. <laughs> It may sound really simple, but we need you to pray with us, for us. They came here. We were together a couple months ago in this room praying for the church in China. So we want to pray for our brothers and sisters in the China partnership, but also for our global partners across our campuses. So we've created a summer prayer calendar that has specific prompts for that. They're back on the back table, they're out at the Connect table. Grab one on your way out. It looks like this. These are the summer prayer uh, bookmarks. So you can put it with your prayer journal or whatever, just whatever is convenient on your fridge, on your mirror. Um, it's got a prayer prompt for each of our each of our partners for each day in June. We'll get another one in July. But this is a way for us to, to be a blessing to all, all peoples. We often look at prayer and think, well, let's. I mean, I kind of want to do more than that. And yet, it's a re- like, God really acts and works through our prayers. And remember, God's plane is often small, as small as praying diligently, routinely for our brothers and sisters, for the gospel to go forth. So pick one of those up on your way out. Okay. God's plane is small, it's costly, it's outward. Fourth, let's go back to the text, verse four. So Abram went as the Lord had told him. So Abram believes God, that he's going to make good on his word, to give him land, to bless him, to make a nation out of his childless family. Abram takes God at his word, and he goes. It's actually, it's striking how quickly you get to that in the text. Verse 4, and Abram went. He left. He leaves it all behind for God, but do you know how long it takes for, some, for even for the first part of this plan to come to fruition? It's another 25 years before the first child of promise is born, Isaac. It's 25 years later. They, I mean, Abram and Sarah took matters into their own hands a couple times. We'll get there. <laughs> we'll cover that ground. But 25 years after this moment, they have their first child, Isaac. God's plan is also slow. It's slow. At the end of Genesis, almost 300 years after this story, he has 70 descendants. It's a family, not really a nation, and it's a family that's on their way to Egypt for roughly 400 years of slavery, which is nothing compared to the 2,000 years it takes to get to Jesus And Jesus was 2,000 years ago from us. So Abraham heard these promises, a family, a land, blessing to the world, and he dies with basically none of it. Listen to how the author of Hebrews says this, chapter 11. By faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive his inheritance, and he went out, not knowing where he was going. By faith, Sarah herself received power to conceive, even when she was past the age, since she considered him faithful who had promised. Therefore, from one man and him as good as dead. So how's that a way to be described? (laughs) Wow. Wow. Him as good as dead were born descendants as many as the stars of heaven and as many as the innumerable grains of sand by the seashore. These all died in faith, not having received the things promised. I mean, I pray for something for a week and I wonder if God's listening. I get so impatient that God is so slow. Why is it taking so long? God, where, I mean, where's Jesus already? Why hasn't he come back? Aren't you seeing what we see, God? Don't you know what's happening down here? But Then I look at Abraham, and I'm reminded, this is God's timeline. This is how he works. Patience is a necessary part of faith, endurance, because God's timeline is not our own. And from our vantage point, it looks and feels slow. Which, of course, is even easier said than experienced, if you're in the middle of that slowness. Some of you have been waiting a long time. I know your stories. For a friend, or a spouse, or a child, or a sibling... For the pain to fade or for joy to finally emerge from the sadness and the grief. For a job that fits. For the end of a deep struggle. For the addiction to go away. In the middle of the slowness, if you're anything like me, your heart tends to wonder am I I doing something wrong? Is this my fault? Is my faith insufficient somehow? We doubt ourselves or we doubt God. Like, doesn't he care? Isn't he supposed to be with me to be a rescuer, to deliver? Doesn't he know what this feels like? Doesn't he want to save? But the truth is, Abraham is the model of faith. Throughout the Bible, I mean, he's not perfect, but he believed God, and he died waiting for the promises, promises that are still being worked out now, I mean, here, through the family of God, his church. Can you wait alongside Abram? Can you wait on God praying for endurance if you need it. God's promises are worth the weight and he will make good on them. Okay, one last observation. God's plan is small, it's costly, it's outward, and it's slow. And his plan is also you. It's me. It's us. God's plan is personal. Personal. In some ways, God's slowness is hard, it's confusing, it stirs up in us doubt, which is okay if we take that to him, and we can take it to him because his plan is a personal one. He is engaged personally. That's the crazy thing about this. I just never tire of the opening line of a text that says, and God said to Abram. We should that should not be missed on us, lost on us, if we understand who this God is. And his plan is a personal one. Because here we are today. God's plan being worked out in our little faith community, thousands of miles and centuries removed from Genesis 12. Jesus promised to build his church and it's happening. The fact that you are here today is, is God fulfilling his promise. To Abram, all the families of the earth shall be blessed, not just the Israelites, you, me. It's a personal plan. It's small, but it's global. It's costly, but it's worth it. It's, it's outward, but that's how it got to you, to me. It's slow, but it's here today, now. And you personally are part of his plan. And if this is true... I just want to close with a question, a simple question, which is this, will you trust him? We're going to come back to that question over and over again. As we sort of turn the corner in Genesis 12, we're going to walk through the slow, I mean, you're going to feel the slowness of this plan because we're going to be in Genesis for a while. <laughs> will you trust him? I mean, if you're not a Christian, we are so, we're so glad you are here. And you might not believe this story. I get that. But I want you to hear what we believe. We believe that this is the lengths to which God has gone to find you. His search for you began 4,000 years ago, actually farther ago than that, right? At the, from the foundation of the world, he's had you in mind. And 2,000 years ago, God himself, Jesus, he came here to find you, to die for you, to come back to life for you, to offer a way to enjoy the promises of God. And he has spent the last 2,000 years building his church to spread this good news, the gospel. Until he got here to you, 4,000 years, 7,000 miles, countless cultures, Could it be that the God of heaven himself is after you? Will you trust him? And if you're a Christian, do you see your life as as a fulfillment and a continuation of this plan to redeem the world? Because that is true. Will you trust him when it seems too small? When his activity seems like it's not enough? when it costs more than you expected it to, when he asks you to give yourself away as a blessing to others in ways that that maybe hurts, when it feels too slow to bear, will you trust him more? Because friends, he he is faithful. Our God is faithful to make good on his promises. The rest of this book is a witness to that truth. We're about to sing a song about the faithfulness of God. Will you trust him more? Let's pray. God, we only ever pray to you as a response to what you've, to you speaking to us first. All of creation, all of this book, is you speaking to us, revealing yourself to us. And it is an incredible thing. And the Lord said to Abram, you wrapped him into the, to your plan of redemption, and you do the same with us. You came all the way to us to save us so that we could actually, in, in the wonder of wonders, be a part of... Of your activity, your redemptive activity in the world. And God, that is gonna take faith and trust in you. So, God, I pray for those who haven't trusted you that they would, and those of us who have given our lives to you, that we would, that we would trust you more, that we would find you faithful, that we'd believe your promises, and that we would act in obedience. Isn't that what we just want to do day in and day out? We need you for that. I pray that you would work that in our hearts and minds even now today, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.